want all of us to be here, uh, not just for communion, but also we're going to have our uh, dear brother from Honduras, um, uh, Hernan Sierra, the missionary that we support, he is going to be here in the flesh, not just on a screen. So praise the Lord. God is sovereign. He's worked out. He actually changed uh, Brother Hernan's plans, and he ended up over here, and it just worked out just perfectly. He can visit us next week. He'll bring the word. He's a fiery preacher. I mean, you're going to... Don't want to speak on behalf of God, but you're going to enjoy next week. I guarantee it, uh, if I can. Um, I, I want you to hear uh, what we're supporting as a church, and that will hopefully motivate you to commit to give to the missions fund regularly, because these brothers, they depend on our giving uh, week to week, month to month. Uh, they depend on those checks that we write them um, to put food on the table, to keep the ministry going, and for other things. Uh, and so this will help you know what you're supporting across the globe. And we do desire to support more men like Hernan. Uh, so please um, be here. Uh, he's not going to show some slideshow of people over there where, you know, pull at your heartstrings. He's just going to preach. I told him, just preach Christ. Preach Christ. And we want to be confident that what we're doing here, you're doing there. I know he is, but I want you to be confident with that. And so he's just going to preach Christ. And I look forward to that. But this week, we are, again, taking a a detour from our trek through Exodus uh, because of what's been going on in the last couple weeks in the life of our church with the grieving and the loss that, has, had of, that have happened, um, we, I believe it's appropriate. I wouldn't be shepherding well if I didn't take these opportunities to help you and to guide you through these seasons. Job 1 I'm going to read all of chapter 1, but we're going to be looking at the last three verses of this chapter. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, And very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and, and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now, On the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, 
The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabians attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I have come from my mother's womb, Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. The title of this sermon is Suffering and the Glory of God. Suffering and the glory of God. And I desire this morning, dear friend, dear believer, dear church, that you would honor God in your suffering. That you would honor God in your suffering. Now, there's no fancy intro to this sermon, no story to be told, because there's much to say, and I don't think it's the time for that. You know, we often think of the book of Job as a test of the character of Job himself. Is he this righteous man or not? Did he suffer because he sinned or not? Well, in actuality, Job's character has already been made clear. We just read it in verse 8. And it's from the, 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 the mouth, you could say, of God himself. God describes Job as the fact that there's no one like him on earth. He is blameless. He is upright. He fears God, and he turns away from evil. This is from God. I mean, I would love to have God say this about me as a believer in Christ, as a follower of him. This man, Job, was a godly man. He was not sinful. Of course, he had sin. Of course, he was not perfect. We know that. But he was a godly man. He was devout in his commitment to the Lord, his love for God. Job's character is not what's being called into question. Job's character is not what's on trial in this book. The reality is that God, what God is doing in Job's life here, in, in all this suffering, and it's going to continue where the, the, with the boils and, and, and the, the pain on Job's body himself, this isn't the end of his suffering. But even in this suffering that we already see with the great loss of all of Job's possessions, and even the loss of his ten children. God was doing something here in, in Job's life that was bigger than Job. That's what we see. We, we just read Satan's accusation is not so much against Job, but against God. Look at verse 9 through 11. Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Then he accuses God, you have made a hedge about him and his house and all his possessions on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land because of you. 
is the idea. But he says, as soon as you stop doing that, he will not worship you. In fact, he'll curse you because you're not worthy of worship. You see, Job is not on trial in this book. God is on trial in this book. And God, through the course of this book of Job, he proves himself as above reproach and as sovereign creator and Lord of all things. And he proves himself as worthy of worship, even in the midst of suffering. The character and the nature of God is what's on trial. Is he really worthy of worship and devotion no matter what? Or do we just follow him and obey him because he gives us good things? Or are, 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 is Christianity a thing? Or, or is religion, uh, this religion of Christianity a thing just because we we're trying to get something good out of God? Is that why people follow him? Or do people worship God simply because of who He is? Before we get to answering these kinds of questions, I believe Christ would have you know first how to respond to suffering. So the first point this morning is to grant pain its place. Grant pain its place. We see that in verse 20. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. Christian, you need to know that suffering is real. Maybe you've come to know that very personally through your own experience recently. Or maybe you've seen that in the lives of another believer. Or maybe you haven't really suffered this way to this level of loss. You need to know that suffering in the life of the Christian is real. What spurs Job to arise and tear his robe and shave his head and fall to the ground on his knees is the news of the loss of his children. And that's why I chose this passage for us to look at this morning. Because of the loss of our dear sister. We've lost her. And that hurts, right? It hurts. When we lose ones that we love, it hurts. I mean, you just have to look at Job's relationship with his children in verses 1 through 5. That he had all these possessions. He had seven sons, three daughters, and all these other possessions of livestock and servants, but his, when his sons would go and, and gather with each other, the, the, we see the father, Job, consecrating his children in verse 5, rising up early in the morning, offering burnt sacrifices for them. His main concern for his children, because he loves them, is their relationship with God. Job loved his children. They weren't just another uh, item of possession that he lost, along with his servants and his livestock. They weren't just another possession. They were near and dear to his heart. He, he, he had a great concern for them, for their spiritual state, their standing before God. He would sacrifice offer sacrifices to God on behalf of them, acting like a priest as a mediator between them and God. This is even before the giving of the law, before the giving of the the Levitical priesthood. And so Job has this relationship with God, and he wants his children to have that same relationship with his God. This is the ultimate expression of love from a parent, isn't it? The central concern of a godly parent is the spiritual state of their children. Job was more concerned about that than anything else. And parent, if if you have children, 
That needs to be your central concern. Not what grades they get. Not what school they go to. Not what college or career they'll end up in. But where do they stand with God? That's our central concern as parents. And that was his concern. He loved them. Yet, we see here in the first chapter of Job, in the course of one day, Job lost his oxen, his donkeys, his servants, his sheep, more of his servants, his camels, and more of his servants. And then we see that all of those losses were tragic, but the last news of loss for Job would cut the deepest, that he lost all ten of his children. And they died in one fell swoop, one tragic event. Now this suffering for Job was so real. It hurt so much. And we see the impact of that loss in Job's reaction in verse 20. You see that the the grief was immediate. As soon as Job heard the news, he arose and he grieved. Right, is communicating immediacy. His grief was not delayed. His grief was as soon as he heard the news. You can imagine one servant after another before the previous servant could get out all the news of what Job had lost. The next servant comes in and interrupts and says, you lost more. And that last servant comes and you can imagine Job's heart And his mind in that moment, as the servant begins to open his mouth and interrupt the previous servant and bring the news, the first words out of his mouth, your sons and your daughters. And as soon as those words leave his mouth, you can imagine Job's heart sinks. Not them. Not my children. Sure, all all of my my possessions, my, my camels, my donkeys, my oxen, Yes, that's lost, but not my children. And so he arises immediately and he tears his robe. This tearing of the robe, all of these things, the tearing of the robe, the shaving the head, all of these things later on, the, 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 the covering yourself with sackcloth and ashes, all of these things were common expressions of grief in that culture. And Job assumed those. He wept. He grieved just like anybody else would grieve at the loss of their children. This tearing of the robe specifically was to picture the tearing of the heart. In Joel 2.13, God is addressing the hypocrisy of his people and he says, you're, you're tearing your robes, but your heart isn't torn over your sin. He says, tear your heart, not your robes over the grief of your sin. So you see, this this tearing of the robes, that's what it meant. That's what it communicated. My heart is rent in two. This is what happened to the soul of this man. And if you've ever been here, you know what that's like. That level of grief where your heart is in two. Torn asunder by the pain of loss. Job goes on, he shaves his head, communicating that he felt that he was stripped of all honor. That's what that communicated. The shaving of the head was was the stripping of everything. Stripping of all honor and adornment of good things in life. I I, I have nothing, is what he's communicating. it's It's a total loss. All of the good that I've accumulated in life is gone because of this great loss. Communicated in all of the hair that I have that have grown over time in the course of life is gone. So the goodness, the sweetness, the honor of life that I've accumulated is no more. So Job shaves his head. This tearing of the robe, shaving of the head and falling to the knees were all common practices of grief in his time. Throughout the Old Testament age. And I say that to point out that as righteous and upright and godly as Job was, 
these common expressions, these common emotions of grief were not below this man of God. It wasn't sin for Job to grieve. Christian, it's not sin for you to grieve, for you to be sad when you lose. It's right, it's natural, it should hurt. We should express that pain. Not out of control. We don't grieve as loss, as if there's no hope. We'll get to that in a moment. But we do grieve. We're not immune. But where does this grief come from? Where do things like this come from? Why do bad things happen? Well, first of all, Suffering is the product of sin. You know, in Genesis 2, we learn that God created man. And he created woman without sin. They were made sinless along with the rest of all of creation. And when God was done creating all things on that sixth day, he stood back, as it were, and he declared that all that he made was very good. There was no sin There was no suffering. There was no death. So what happened to where we see this in the life of Job? Such such suffering and loss. What happened in the world to where we experienced that kind of suffering and loss? Why did these things happen? Well, in Genesis 3, we see that the serpent, Satan, he tempted Eve to disobey God. And Eve, though sinless, still had free will. And she had not sinned at that point. But she was not unable to sin. So Satan deceived her to doubt God. To second-guess the word of God. And so Eve sinned, and Adam, like that passive fool of a husband that we can default back into, Adam also went along with her headlong into sin. And the result was just as God promised. In the day that you do that, you will surely die. Dying, you shall die, it says. The result of sin is death, physical death and spiritual death. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Why is there death? Because there's sin. And all mankind is subject to the consequence of sin. You see, nobody escapes death. Ecclesiastes 8.8 says that no man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. There is no discharge in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. You see, there is no man, it says, who has authority over the day of death. You can't choose when you die. Hebrews 9.27 says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Who appoints for men to die? It's God. And it's the result of our sin. It's the result of sin in the world. It's the result of the fall of mankind. And the works of the devil He is a liar, right? Jesus says he is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Who did he kill? You see, in his lying, in his deception and twisting of the word of God towards Adam and Eve, he brought about death. He was their murderer there in Genesis 3. This is where suffering comes from. Nobody is immune. This is why there is suffering in the world. Now we understand that suffering in the life of the sinner 
right? We, we, we understand for, for the sinner, the, the enemy of God, those that reject God, that they would suffer. We understand that. That makes sense. They're, they're getting what is coming to them. They're getting the judgment for their sin. They're simply receiving the consequence of their rebellion. But what about the child of God? What about somebody like Job, who is righteous and upright and follows the Lord? Why do bad things happen to those kinds of people? The last action of Job here in verse 20 points us to that answer. He fell to the ground and worshipped. The word for worship here is literally that Job bowed down to the earth. Connected to the previous verbs, the idea is that Job fell to his knees and he bowed his face to the ground. Now, modern scholars translate this word as worship. And it makes sense, especially given the words that Job is about to say, that he blessed the name of the Lord. He, he's about to worship God, but literally this word is that he fell, to the gr- he fell to the ground on his knees and he put his face to the earth. That's what the wording is. It's not the word for worship. What this word is really communicating is this state of humility and submission of Job. Just like a a lowly servant bows down low, pressing his face to the ground in the presence of royalty, so also Job bowed low, pressing his face to the earth in the presence of divine royalty. And Job knew that this humble position, face to the ground, was the right state for him at that moment. Even in the midst of his grieving, he knew that God was in control. After all, what's the alternative? It's the exact opposite, right? For Job to stand, to look up to the sky and raise his fist to the air and frown at God. That's your alternative. You see, Job knew where his suffering came from. Later on in chapter 2, verse 10, Job says, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? He knew at whose hands this came from. Yes, God used Satan, and he allowed this thing to happen, but it ultimately came from God. Remember, God said, Have you considered Job? He brought him up. So Job knew God's in control. I am receiving something from my Lord. He knew that just as God gave Job his beloved children, so also God gave him, God gave Job this grief of loss. Both good and adversity come from the Lord. Job 14.5 says, His days are determined. The number of his months is with you, God, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. God numbers our days. Deuteronomy 32.39 says, See now that I am he. There is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. There is no one who can deliver from my hand. All of these things come from God. And we, we must not lose sight of that, church. Even though it hurts, we must know that God is still in control. Because He gave it to us. It's not that some... Terrible tragedy has happened and God is going to just make lemonade out of lemons. No. 
God caused it to happen because he's doing something. You see, knowing these deep truths about our God gives us a greater view of the greatness of our Creator, doesn't it? It causes us, it should cause us, to join Job there on the floor in that humble position of submission to the sovereignty of God. Kneel next to Him when you suffer like this. Get down on your knees, put your face to the ground, and say, God, I know this is from you. I don't know why, but I know you're in control. And I, and I submit to whatever you're doing, even though I don't know what you're doing. But let me be clear. Knowing these truths of God does not make our suffering without pain. It doesn't, these foundational truths of God do not nullify the grief of death and loss. That's not what we're saying. Give pain its place. These truths of, of God's sovereignty become the believer's anchor. It doesn't, doesn't uh, make us immune to the pain, but in the midst of the pain, these truths become the believer's anchor in the middle of their storm of suffering. And yes, the waves of emotion will come and go. They will toss us around a bit, bring us high and bring us very low. But that anchor of the nature and the character of God will not let us be swept away and swallowed up in the sea. So trust Him and honor God in your suffering. So in the midst of suffering, church, we need to grant pain its place. But suffering is also there to help us. To help us to gain perspective on life. That's our second point this morning, gain perspective on life. Verse 20, 21, the beginning half there, Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Job gained some really clear perspective in that moment. He saw that good Things in life are temporary. When he says naked here, he means without possessions. And it's amazing that God gives Job this level of clarity on the reality of life and possessions in the midst of this loss. God can do that for you, Christian. He can help you remain clear-headed under the clouds of grief. We have come into this world with nothing and we will leave this world with nothing. Ecclesiastes 5.15 says, As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. 1 Timothy 6.7 says, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. I've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearst. We don't take anything with us when we die. Not only are the good things of life temporary, but life itself is temporary. Life itself is a vapor. Psalm 39, 4 and 5 says, Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at, its, at his best is a mere breath. The best of men is a breath. Job 14, 1 and 2 says, Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. That's us. We are transient. We are temporary. The, the, our, our, the number of our days can be, can be marked out on the breadth of, of our hand. 
We're a mere breath of mere vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. Is this some sort of Christian fatalism? Well, to, to say it doesn't matter then. All the good things of life are, tr- are temporary. My life itself is temporary, whatever. The, uh, life, life doesn't matter then. There's of little value to the, our, our joys and our, and our loves and our, our, and our uh, possessions in life. There's little value toward the number of our days. No, that's not what this is saying. The, the British missionary to China, India, and Africa, Charles Thomas Studd, once said, and you probably are familiar with this, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You see, times of suffering, especially times of suffering surrounding death, are tools in the hands of our master. Tools in the hands of this master carpenter that he uses to form us and make us into better vessels of the gospel of Christ. So use these times to ask yourself, what am I doing with my life? Do I want to reach the end full of regret? Or do I want to maximize each day for Christ? Because this life is soon going to pass. And it's coming quicker than you know. Oh, how we've been reminded of that in recent days and months and years. Life is fleeting. What are you doing with your life? What are you doing that will have eternal significance, Christian? Or, or are you wasting your life simply doing hobbies and satisfying your, your desires? Don't waste your life. Make it count for the Lord. You're running out of time. I don't care if you're 10 years old. You're running out of time. It's going faster than you think. Make each day count for Christ. Not only this kind of perspective on the temporariness of the good things of life and life itself, but also this reality comes before the thoughts of Job. And he says, naked I shall return there. That is, naked I shall die, is what he's saying. When we die... We are laid bare before God at death. Notice that Job understands that he will take nothing with him when he, when he leaves this earth. When we move to a, another apartment or another house in this world, right? We, we often drive a U-Haul there, taking all of our stuff. But when somebody dies, as I already said, as when somebody dies and they move from this life to the next, A U-Haul does not follow them. You see, we don't leave this earth with all of our possessions. What happens when we die? Well, again, Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. What kind of judgment? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Dear friend, it doesn't matter how much pension you've accumulated, what kind of car you own, what your monthly salary is, how big your home or your apartment is. It doesn't matter if you have the latest iPhone. In the end, you will stand before God stripped stripped of all of your earthly possessions, all of your earthly fame and clout, the poor and the rich, the peasant and the king will all stand before God, the eternal judge of all men. We'll stand before him on that judgment day. And what will you say, friend, on that day? What will you say on that day? When God asks you, why should I not cast you into that fiery eternal death that I prepared for the devil and and, and the fallen angels? 
Why should I not cast you in there along with the rest of the rebels and sinners? Why should I not reject you for all your years of rejection of me? What will you do? What will be your answer? Will you point to the equity on your house that you've earned? Or will you cry out the blood of Christ? The blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. That's my only plea is the blood of Christ. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Saved from what? That day. That judgment. Acts 10.43 Through His name, through the name of Christ, everyone who believes in Christ receives forgiveness of sins. Either you get forgiveness in Christ, and escape from judgment on that day, or you're going to pay for your sins. Which will it be? You can't use the equity on your house to pay for your sins in the end. Only the blood of Christ can do that. These times of suffering are tools in the hands of God to make us face-to-face with reality, face-to-face with eternity. And as we go through the pain of suffering and gain this heavenly perspective on life, we must always remember that this is all about the glory of God. Even your suffering, Christian, is meant to exalt Christ somehow. So, thirdly, in the midst of suffering, give praise to God. The second half of verse 21, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job understands life is a gift from God. Now, of course, a sinner doesn't appreciate this reality, but everything good in life, even life itself is from God. The Lord gives. That's what he does. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. James 1.11 What do you have as if you did not receive it? And why do you boast as if you have not received it? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, Matthew 5, 45. Everything good in this life is from God. But the Lord takes away too. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. We talked about this already. As Job had said, both good and adversity both come from God's hand. And notice that Job doesn't say it was the Sabians, it was the lightning, the fire, the Chaldean raiders, the unnatural disaster that took his possessions or his children. It was God. You see, we don't blame a virus. We don't blame people for death. We ascribe it to God. Not that we blame God. I'll get to that in a moment. But we understand that the virus is not ultimately responsible for loss. God is. He caused this to happen. He could use a virus, he can use a car, he can use a natural disaster. It's in his timing. It's in his timing. But again, why? Why? Well, God is always at work in the world, dealing out judgment and punishment for sin on the unbeliever. But he is also active in our lives as his people. Each day, God brings things into our lives to work on us, to change us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And what the first chapter of Job teaches us is that there is often something greater than us that is happening. Yes, God's working in your life and doing something to you, and and that's why He's allowing this, because He never wastes tragedy. But often there's something bigger that's happening. Maybe something in somebody else's life that he needs to accomplish. Maybe he needs to bring somebody to to him through this loss. 
Maybe he needs to exalt himself in somebody's eyes that has lost sight of him through a loss. Maybe there's something even greater on a universal scale, like what happened with Job. Maybe there is this trial that God is on that he's proving himself. He's trying to prove himself through your suffering. Maybe that's what he's doing. God is operating in a million different circumstances, a million different events, with a million different outcomes and purposes to his dealings and his providence in life. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8. Yes, your heavenly Father is intimately at work in your life, in your heart, but he is also the cosmic king of the universe. And there are things that he is doing that go beyond our daily circumstances and even our own very life. He doesn't tell us all that he's doing. But he doesn't have to. We understand this. This is the position of Job. Remember, he's saying all these things on his knees, face to the ground. He knows that God has caused this, and he, and he doesn't demand an answer from God at this point. He doesn't have to give you an answer. But if you are his child by faith in Christ, you can be sure, Christian, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 Christian, nothing is wasted with God. Even tragedy. Suffering is never meaningless. Death is never outside of God's plan for the believer. Therefore, in all circumstances, God is worthy of our praise. Notice that what Job, what Job doesn't do. What he doesn't say. He doesn't stand face raised to the heavens, fist shaking at God. He doesn't say the Lord gave and has taken away, God, you're so unfair. He doesn't say that. Or curse you, God, for this. He doesn't say that. No, the heart of the true believer cannot curse God. He may battle with sinful doubt towards God, but we don't stay there. And the heart of the true believer must praise God. Why? Why? Why can we praise God even in the greatest suffering we can praise God in suffering because even though our circumstances might change and even change greatly and painfully, even though our circumstances might change, there is something that does not change, Christian. Your God does not change. And though you, your day may change tonight, God has not changed. Though your dancing may change to morning, God has not changed. Though your riches have changed to poverty, God has not changed. Your health has changed to sickness, God has not changed. And though your dreams may turn to nightmares, God has not changed. He doesn't change. He is immutable. He is still Yahweh. That's what the name that Job uses. He is still I am. He is still the God of the universe, the holy and majestic one, the sovereign Lord over creation, the righteous judge of all mankind, and the tender shepherd of your soul, the faithful provider of all your needs. He is still God. And if he is still God, you still have a reason to worship him. So honor God in your suffering. You can see Job's concern is the name of the Lord in the midst of his suffering. It's all about the name of the Lord being blessed. That is the fame, the reputation of God. What is his desire about the fame and the reputation of God? That it would be blessed. That is, that, that it would be filled up. When we ask God to bless us or to bless an event, we're asking God to give and to fill with strength and power. But when we bless God, we are, as it were, filling his reputation the, the, the cup of his, of his fame. We are casting power and honor into the cup and filling it up 
that he would be more praised, more glorified on this earth and in our eyes. Even in the darkest hour of Job's life, the pulse of his heart was still that of John the Baptist. He must increase, I must decrease. Lastly, if you do these things, if you grieve without anger towards God, if you gain a heavenly perspective, if you give praise to God in the midst of suffering, Christian, you will be well on your way to guard your heart from sin in the midst of suffering. That's our last point. I'll cover this briefly. Guard your heart from sin in the midst of suffering. Again, this test is not about Job. It's about God. And even here in this last verse, in verse 22, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. So yes, the, 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 the Job is vindicated, He's proven to be loyal to God. But yet this is, again, still all about the Lord. And it says that he did not blame God. He did not blame God. You see, Satan's accusation is that believers only follow God in order to get good things from him. Or... Christians' devotion to God is only motivated because he's getting good things from God. God, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You put food on the table, money in the bank, and then I'll praise you. But as soon as that is compromised, I won't be there on Sunday. You're on your own. I got nothing to say to you, God. I have nothing to worship about. Is that you? Is that you? Dear friend, in your life, is Satan's accusations true? Do you say that you fear God, but it's only to get what you want out of him? Or Christian, how about you? Is your devotion to God grounded on just how much he did for you that day? You see, to follow God in order to get good things is sin. To follow God because you have good things is sin. Not only that, but to expect good things because you do follow God is sin. Or to demand things, to demand good things, so that you will follow God. God, give me this first and then I'll follow you, is sin. What the Lord can do for Job is not why Job follows the Lord. What Job gets out of God is not the primary motivation of his worship. Therefore, when the Lord had taken away these things away from Job, Job did not blame God. That is, that is, it doesn't mean that he didn't ascribe this reality, this tragedy to God as God is the source of it. We, we already know that from chapter 2, that this is from the hand of God. What it means here when it says, nor did he blame God, literally it is that he did not charge God with wrong. He did not ascribe fault or folly or wrongdoing upon God. As if God had done something offensive or wrong. No, Job humbled himself before his God. And I believe that Job said all of these words, naked I come from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job said these things on his knees, forehead pressed to the ground. Job humbled himself before his God, bowing before the Lord. And the ultimate example of this kind of faith is in none other but Jesus Christ, our Lord. 1 Peter 2, 
21 through 25 says, You have been called for this purpose. What's a purpose? Context is suffering. Christian, you have been called to suffer. Did you know that? You weren't called to green, perfect pastures and and clouds and sunshine. You were called to suffer at times. You've been called to this purpose, to suffer, since Christ also suffered for you. Notice the author doesn't go back to Job. He goes right to Christ. Christ suffered too. He suffered for you, Christian. And he suffered to leave you an example for you to follow in his steps. What are his steps in his suffering? He committed no sin, like Job. Nor was any deceit found in in his mouth, like Job. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But what did he do? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In the midst of the deepest, darkest suffering ever experienced by any human being on that cross, Christ trusted his heavenly Father. He looked up and he said, God, why have you forsaken me? Yet I trust you. Yet I trust you. And he handed himself over to God. And he goes on here in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Christian, when you fail in the midst of suffering, and when you sin and doubt and, or, or even, even blame God as if he did something wrong, even that is paid for by the blood of Christ on the cross. He bore your sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He died for you on the cross, Christian, so that you would respond to suffering rightly. That you would die to sin and live righteously. For by his wounds you were healed. And then notice he says this in the last verse, verse 25, 1 Peter 2.25. For you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Why does he say that? Remember, again, the context is suffering. If you believed on Christ, if he is your Lord and your Savior, he is also the shepherd and the guardian of your soul in the midst of suffering. Christian, these truths are meant not to take away your pain, but to set your feet on solid ground so that you would not stumble and fall under the weight of suffering, but rather stand with hope and confidence in your God. Dear Saint, the shepherd and guardian of your soul will guide you through your suffering. He will give you a song to sing. He will give you praise to offer to your God. And He will help you to stand. Let's pray. Stand with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask for Your supernatural help. Each of us in our own way, going through our own trials, Maybe it's a loss. Maybe it's a current difficult situation of life. Maybe it's a frustration, a a change of plan. Maybe it's an ongoing illness. Maybe it's a temporary sadness. God, whatever it is, would you be near to us? May we fall at your feet, confident, that you're in control. Nothing is outside. There's no, there's no rogue molecule in your universe. There's no, there's no rebellious uh, situation that, that you don't have control over yet. 
No, everything is according to plan. It's all going according to plan. Even the pain. And so, God, we receive even these things from you. And we ask for your help to endure and to trust. And God, as we do that, may the looking world see us and see a hope, see a confidence, see, see a foundation that is solid. And God, I pray that they would come and ask, why aren't you utterly broken? Why aren't you just ruined by this? What's upholding you? How can you smile? And we can point to our Savior. It's Him. He's holding my hand, even now. He's helping me through. God, do that for your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing.